the Bible sets out that Abraham was born around 2150 BC in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. And on the, the map on the screen, Ur is on the, the bottom um, southeast. And he left Ur with most of his family and moved to a place called Haran, which is in the, the north um, center of the, the map. And then he arrived in a land then known as Canaan, which is the, the current um, country of, of Israel. And he moved around that country, living in a tent, living a fundamentally nomadic uh, life. And while he was there, he had a, a son uh, with a servant called Hagar, and this, that son was called uh, Ishmael. And he had a son with his wife, Sarah, and that son was called Isaac. And he died around 1975 BC. So, that's as an outline of the biography of somebody's life. Um, and I want to look also at a, another source that says um, it knows something about who Abraham was. And I want to just bring this together. And the structure of tonight is really to think through, you know, who is Abraham? What do we know? And then what is the promise made to Abraham? And why does it matter to us? And how does that promise lead to uh, eternal life? That's the, the direction we're trying to, to take. And so just to look at what else is said uh, about Abraham. Uh, and this is a, a quote I took from Wikipedia um, earlier this month. Um, and it seeks to explain who Abraham was. Now, in schools, children are taught to spot fake news by looking for certainty, not backed up by facts, and looking out for exaggeration or indeed for, for false, um, falsely sourced information, among other factors. So I just want to go through this text as an exercise really for, for us, the spot Bible-based criticism that's presented as factual. So let me just read what's on the, the, text, um, on the, the text to you. The Abraham story cannot be definitively related to any specific time. And it is widely agreed that the patriarchal age, along with the Exodus and the period of the judges, is a late literary construct that does not relate to any period in actual history. After a century of exhaustive archaeological investigation, no evidence has been found for an historical Abraham. His story was probably composed in the early Persian period, the late 6th century and before the Common Era. So... There's a few phrases I really want to, to highlight um, for you and just think about wh where, where is this writing coming from? And yeah, we can see often many things in the, the media around us that appear to factually say the Bible isn't true or things are wrong. And what I'm trying to get across by doing this is look at what is written, look at how it is written, look at the evidence presented um, to, to critique what you're reading and never take it at, uh, at face value. Now, the first point I would make is the period of Abraham's life can be calculated from Bible genealogies. So the phrase that Abraham's life cannot be definitively related to any specific time is questionable and subjective at best. So I'm going to take the liberty of just getting rid of of that. The phrase, it is widely agreed, begs the question of evidence to back that statement up. How many people have you met in the week that's just gone who talked about Abraham? 
and you know Jewish Christian Muslim scholars together with yeah, many non-faith based academics accepts that Abraham was an historical figure so I'm afraid I'm going to take that text out too and then spot the definitiveness how absolutely certain the statement is that Abraham's life is a late literary construct and the use of complex language that perhaps gives it a statement the statement a bit more respectability and one of the sources given for this statement is someone called uh, William uh, Dever, who also uh, said, I am not reading the Bible as scripture. I am, in fact, not even a theist, somebody who believes in God. My view all along, and especially in the recent books, this is somebody who publishes books um, about uh, Bible times from uh, a critical view, is first that the Bible narratives are indeed stories, often fictional, and almost always, always propagandistic, so trying to get a particular message across, but that here and there they may contain some valid historical information. So he is a source with an agenda and with a particular worldview that he's trying to put forward, and his views are just being quoted as fact. So I don't think on a, a rational basis that can, can stand up to, um, to strong scrutiny. And I'd also like to point out the phrase, after a century of exhaustive archaeological investigation. And the implication is that lots of archaeologists have researched this question and agreed a unified position that they agree can't change. And this is poor logic. One, how would anyone exhaust a search for anything across a swathe of the Middle East, particularly a swathe of the Middle East that quite a bit of it is, is desert? And secondly, how would a group of academics reach an absolute position on something they know may be undone by somebody finding something in the future? So you know, there is no direct evidence of many ancient historical figures that we accept existed, such as Boudicca or Cleopatra. There's even scant archaeological evidence that Napoleon and his army marched in Egypt in 1798, which we can prove from um, you know, contemporary records. And Napoleon's army, like Abraham, lived in tents. So it's not exhaustive searching that's important. It's the temporary nature of a life lived in tents that leaves no physical record. So I'm going to take uh, that out as not a reasonable test. Finally, spot the word probably in the phrase, his story was probably composed. So this is just supposition. And again, this is linked to a, an author's um, view and the source of um, that, that view is, um, comes from a man called Hermann Gunkel, who developed a theory of Bible criticism in the early 20th century. And again, somebody with a particular worldview. So I think in whose view is it probable? And I think that is again, subjective and not provable. So, even if we don't have the knowledge to discount criticism of the Bible as fake news, please look at the language used, the sources quoted, and think about the perspective or the values of the author. And above all, come back to the Bible and think about what the Bible says for itself. Don't take people's interpretation of it as a way of setting out what it says. And until 1849, Critics of the Bible claimed that Ur of the Chaldees, Abraham's birthplace, was a myth. 
And then in 1849, unfortunate for those people who were making a career out of saying that Ur was a myth, archaeologists identified the city of Ur, and its existence is not a point of discussion for, for archaeologists today. And more directly, the Ugarit uh, tablets, which were discovered between 1929 and 1993, and they date back to about 1300 to 1200 BC, around 500 years after the uh, death of Abraham, they relate aspects of his life's events from the perspective of the Ugarit people who lived in the land uh, now called Syria. And this isn't, though, just an academic argument. I'm sharing this to show that the statement of the Wikipedia site about Abraham is not good history. And we need to be careful about what we read and take as facts. There'll be reasons why you can find academics arguing that Abraham didn't exist, but find no academic arguing about the existence of Cleopatra, Boudicca, or Napoleon's exploits in Egypt. And I suggest people challenge the Bible as a means of challenging authority, as a way of reinforcing their own belief system. But I want you to hold on to the idea that whatever people's motivation for challenging the Bible, the unevidenced asserted ideas of a few people are not worth throwing away eternal life for. Now, God made promises to Abraham that he would be a great man, uh, a great nation with many children that God would bless Abraham, that Abraham's name would be great, and that everyone would be benefited were blessed as a result of Abraham. So the promises are recorded in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. And I'll just, I've taken quotes from those um, chapters on the screen. So the first promise is I'll make of thee a great nation. The second promise, I will make nations and kings, kings shall come out of thee as many descendants as the stars in heaven. The third is that I will bless thee. The fourth is that I will make thy Abraham's name great. The fifth is that Abraham shall be a blessing. The sixth, I will bless them that bless thee. And the seventh, I will curse him that curseth thee. And the eighth, in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And the ninth, I will give thee this land of Israel, the place he was at the moment, at that time, to inherit it. Now, Abraham is mentioned 70 times in the New Testament and 10 times by Jesus. And this is more mentions than the New Testament contains for other significant people whose lives are recorded in the Old Testament, such as Adam or David. And the reason that Abraham matters is that the promises that God made to him are the basis of the gospel, the good news of the New Testament. Galatians 3, verse 8, quoted on the screen, states, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen, that's just a, an old English word for the nations across the world, that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. And the way that all people in the world can be blessed through Abraham is because of Abraham's descendants, Jesus. So let's bring the two parts of this talk's title together. 
And the, the title, just to remind you, is Abraham Will Live Again. Why? And let's focus in on what it means to live again. So Abraham is currently dead. His death was recorded in the, the book of Genesis. And to live again, he would need to be resurrected or restored to life. And this is not an everyday idea. And yet it is a core part of the gospel message. For example, Jesus, as recorded in Luke chapter 10 and verse 25, had a conversation uh, about eternal life. And I'll just read that to you, Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He, Jesus, said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he, the, the lawyer, answering, said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbour as thyself. And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. So at a very basic level, we can live forever if we love God, which means obeying what he asks of us, and we are loving to others. And then 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 explains how eternal life will come to be. And just read that, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. So just as Adam, through the sin that was committed, gave us all mortal natures that as a result of um, th that original sin in the, the Garden of Eden, and as a result of everything that we, we do that moves us away from, from God's ways, then we are dying creatures. We are mortal. We, we die. And it is only by Jesus, who is the only person, whoever, as the New Testament tells us, did not do any sin. He did nothing that went against God's will. And because he had done nothing that went against God's will, then he did not deserve death. And because he had done that and he died at the hands of the, the Romans um, unjustly, that because that was not right, because he had not sinned, then he got his life back. And because he lived a life without being um, given away to temptation, then by being associated with Jesus, we can be, be joined with that life that he, he can offer. So it's only by being associated with Jesus that we can be uh, with him at the time he returns to the, the earth. So, yeah, you know, sorry, gone on the slide too quickly. So Jesus is the first of those who will live again. And he, unlike us, had never sinned. So Jesus' resurrection was on the basis of justice or fairness. 
If the wages of sin is death, then Jesus didn't earn the wages. I just want to emphasize, because Jesus never sinned, then everyone who associates themselves with Jesus by getting baptized and living a life showing that you're on Jesus' side, everyone who does this will get eternal life when Jesus comes back by God's kindness. This is not something we can earn. This is only possible because God is kind enough to do this. So the next question to my mind is, where will people have eternal life? And I've selected three verses to show that God's kingdom will be on earth. First, God says via Isaiah to the faithful in Isaiah 26, verse 19, Thy dead man sh men shall live, together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust, for thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. So faithful people who are dead will get their lives back and get out of the grave. The earth shall cast out dead people. And then Numbers 14, verse 21. As truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. And that was God speaking. So as truly as God lives, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. And at no time in human history since the start of creation has the earth been filled with the glory of God. And for that to be the case in the future, God would need to be in total control of the countries in the earth. And in that time, just to look at the final quote on the, the screen, God says, again through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 3, He shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. So judgment is on the earth. God's kingdom is on the earth. And this is a, a kingdom that is a, a, a great thing that's in front of us. This is a time of equity, of justice, of kindness, of love. It is so unlike the current world that we, we live in. And the time of promise, the time when all people in the, the earth will be blessed, is in front of us. And this is something that we can have an opportunity to be part of. So let's read Galatians 3 and verse 6 together to bring the ideas we've been talking about this evening together. So Galatians 3 and verse 6, even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. So if we, like Abraham, believe the promises of God, believe that we need to change our lives in the way that God has said, then that's how we get the kindness of God. That's how God accounts our faith, treats our faith, as if we weren't sinners, as if we did no wrong. It's not that yeah, we are great people as Christadelphians. We are, we, are, we are people who make mistakes, but we're people who are faithful, who are trying to, to, to lead lives that are pleasing to God. And so let's continue that um, reading. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture 
For seeing that God would justify the heathen, the nations, through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. So to live eternally in a wonderful world without the problems that we have today, along with the historical figures who followed God in their lives, like Abraham, this involves committing your life to living in a similarly faithful way. To be counted with the faithful with Abraham, we need to be baptised and to try our best to live lives that show our faith. Thank you very much for, for listening.